I want to tell you outright, it's a little interesting, we have some visitors here this morning, but you're going to get two sermons today, and I apologize in advance. I'm going to give you a pre-sermon right now, kind of sort of, you'll think it's a pre-sermon, but I cut my sermon down in time. So don't, don't be nervous, just stay calm. Um, we're, we're going to cut down the other sermon, because I want to say a few things today, because today really is a wonderful day. We don't get this opportunity very often. We've had some baptisms not very long ago, which were a huge blessing. And when we have an opportunity to have the Lord's Supper and have baptisms and also hear from the Word of God, what we really are um, experiencing in a very real sense is what the Reformers used to call the normal means of grace. And I just want to take a few minutes to explain them because it wasn't in the past few decades, as churches have been on the decline, there's been different methods outside of Scripture to, to try to revitalize churches that have been dying. And in, in, in some circles, sermons are shortened. Um, they, they, instead of giving a sermon, it's just a small talk. The Bible's reduced to just a book of principles, and um, sin's hardly mentioned, and entertainment is the, is the form of the day. We really ought to make sure that you get the people back next week, so the most important thing is not that I stand here and preach, but I'm more of a Johnny Carson, Jimmy Fallon kind of guy, entertain everybody, we entertain up here, so hopefully we get everyone back next week which are all pragmatic ways of building the church. Um, the, the, we don't have to guess at what we're supposed to do when we're commanded together. And it's part of these, what we call the ordinary or the normal means of grace. And they're designed to bless us. They're designed to grow the church. They're designed to reach the lost. They're designed to build the church, uh, conform us to Christ, make us holy, and really unite us in Christ. And, and well, what are these? The normal means of grace are simply right preaching of God's word, praying, and the right use of what we call the sacraments. The sacraments are the Lord's Supper and, and baptism. We say the right use because you can use these same things in the wrong way as a workspace system, and that would be the wrong use. So it's very simple. And we all experience all of these today plus have the opportunity to fellowship afterward and have lunch. So today is a real blessing, and I'm so thankful for all who are here as we can experience these normal means of grace together. And truthfully, what this really means is that this is what helps us for the church to grow, and ordinary means exactly what it is. Ordinary. Nothing spectacular about it. It's just the ordinary preaching, the ordinary things that we do as a congregation every Sunday. And everything that I just mentioned is what we do when it comes to corporate worship. Now, I'm sure um, that you've been hearing me. I've been a pastor here since last March, and I have been beating the same drum every week. Show up for church. Show up for the attendance. Show up for the gathering. And there'd be some probably, you know, of course, barring emergencies, barring work and so on. And um, some are probably thinking, that's all the guy harps on. Um, I just beg you to come consistently. And what I'm trying to convey is the scripture bears out that your spiritual health is directly tied to the corporate gathering when you can experience these normal means of grace. God never intended us to live the Christian life alone. It's always been in, in the form of a body. We have such a culture of total individualism, and, and I don't think everyone sees this, but truthfully, if you're a believer, then you're in a spiritual battle 24 hours a day, seven days a week of your life. You're battling the world, you're battling your own flesh, and you're battling the devil. 
And it's these normal means of grace that are to help us in the battle. So what happens is, when you miss corporate worship, you don't remain neutral. I mean, you go backwards. You know, those, so many in our congregation have had to battle through cancer treatment. And you wouldn't think for a moment that you're going to miss a chemo appointment or miss a radiation appointment, because if you do, then the cells will begin to overtake you. Well, the normal means of grace that we participate in as a congregation are there to battle those same cells of our own depravity and our own sin so that we can, in fact, grow together and remain healthy. When, you, when you're not here for lengths of time, quite honestly, it's not a neutrality. You'll go backwards. I say that from scripture and I say it from experience because there was a time in my life, my wife and I, our life, when we did not regularly attend and we certainly went backwards. So today is such a blessing because in a normal, regular service, we're here preaching in prayer, but today we have the addition of the Lord's Supper, uh, which is the means of grace and baptism. So, and then enjoying one another's company afterward. Just going to be a wonderful day and we're so grateful for you being here. We're family. We're the body of Christ, and we're being a part of these same ordinary means of grace are what helps us to grow and bring us to a better knowledge of who Christ is and unites us to one another. Now, that leads me into your bulletin on the other side of the insert, uh, where it solves 10 reasons for church membership. Um, we're going to start a church membership class next Sunday during Sunday school. Part of the reason we're doing that is we're going to start having children Sunday school within the next month or two. And to do that, we need a few more teachers. And there are some people that want to teach, but they're not members. So we're going to have a membership class. next. It'll be for the next two Sundays. And we welcome anyone who would like to come and be a part of that or, or, or learn more. Um, the, uh, because we want members of the church to be the ones who are doing the teaching. Um, some have the opinion that, you know, I'm part of the universal body of Christ. I'm a Christian. Uh, the Bible does not say, you can't point to a verse that says, thou shalt be a church member, so I, I don't think I'm going to join a church. And let me just take a moment to encourage you that though church membership isn't necessarily a Bible verse, I can give you several reasons why, here and I will, why church membership is so important. Uh, in a bigger city, this may not happen here, but in a bigger city, it's not unusual for a group of people to love the singing at church A. They show up at 9 o'clock at Church A, and they sing their hearts out for 30 minutes. But the guy can't preach. So they run over to Church B to hear the sermon. So after the singing and the sermon, they feel like they're all filled up with all that God wants them to do. But then they go, ah, but my kids didn't get anything. Well, Church C has the greatest youth group in the city. So they go Sunday night to Church C to get their kids fed, and the best small group in town is Church D, so they meet in small group on Tuesday night. What my suggestion is, is that is clearly not exactly what God would want, because his, all through the New Testament, God establishes local bodies of believers to be bound together under the same authority and the same leadership, and they're bound together in Christ. That's the New Testament example, not us kind of bouncing from place to place. Uh, and these, these reasons, I'll go through them very quickly. Um, the universal church throughout history meets in local assemblies. In Acts 20, uh, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders that they have to give oversight over those who are in their care. The Ephesian elders weren't responsible for the believers in Colossae. Uh, our elders aren't responsible for the, for the believers at Cornerstone. You know, we're responsible here, and so we're trying to build a congregation with members who are here in this particular body. 
Uh, we are responsible for your souls. And when people aren't here, um, it's hard to be responsible or accountable. We're accountable to God for every individual that's here. And so it's hard to do that when we're not meeting together and bound together in membership. And the deacons have those same roles. You know, in Acts 6, when they helped the Jewish widows to be fed, um, they weren't worried about the, the widows in other churches. It was just theirs in their own congregation. And, and you could look through the rest of these. I don't have to go through all of them. All of these are reasons and more for us to be bound together in church membership in a local church. So um, let me encourage you, if you're not a member, to uh, think about coming next Sunday at 10 o'clock. It'll be during the Sunday school class where we'll start a membership class. It's only for two weeks, talking about some basic things about church membership. And, and we hope that you could come to that. In fact, if you think you're going to come, let me know or let Brad know because we might be able to give child care for you uh, if you're interested. So I apologize for my longer announcements, my pre-sermon. My post-sermon won't be as long as normal. Uh, and then we have our baptism and we have our Lord's Supper. And we're so thankful you're here to, to worship with us and participate in what we just called these normal means of grace. So that by way of announcements, we'll go ahead and have our prelude and then we'll worship our great God. Colossians 1, verse 3. I'll read verse 3, and then we'll go to verse 9. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. Uh, now, last week we noticed in verse 3 through 8 why Paul <coughs> prayed for these Colossian believers. And let me encourage you that if you weren't here to hear last Sunday's sermon, if you go to our website on the church website and listen to what you missed last week, uh, throughout the book of Colossians, as we, as we travel through the book, each sermon will be built on the previous sermon. So if you miss anything and want to get caught up, let me encourage you to go to our website and take advantage of that. Uh, by way of reminder, by, Paul had never met these Colossians. Epaphras was the one who planted the church. He pastored the church. Uh, he was actually in prison with Paul in Rome. They had a lot of time to talk together. And Epaphras surely told Paul all that God had been doing uh, among these believers in Colossae. So what we have here in the beginning of the letter is Paul expressing his prayerful thanksgiving for several things and then later in the letter, he's going to move toward the concerns he has for the teachings that have come into the church. Now, as I said before, that Paul is going to battle the false teaching with a full and a rigorous presentation of the absolute sufficiency of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the direction the letter is going. But before he gets there, he's going to let them know that he prays for them. He tells them why he prays for them. He tells them when he prays for them, and he tells them what he prays for them. We went over this mostly last week in verses 3 through 8, when he states in verse 3, that we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
Then he goes on from there and gives the reasons why he's praying for them. It's, it's because of the faith they have in Christ Jesus. It's because of the love they have for other believers. And it's because of the hope that they have in heaven. And the point we made last week is, is if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And belief in and trust in and faith in Jesus Christ, the true gospel, changes lives. I pointed out last week the elements of the true gospel, if you remember them, the essentials, is to believe that God is holy, that man is in sin, that, that, that Christ is our Savior, and we must turn from our sin and trust in his substitutionary atoning sacrifice for our sin. And when we do, our lives will reflect the transformation. We're delivered from darkness and brought into the light. We're saved from death and brought to new life in Christ. And we're going to see this again and again and again throughout this wonderful book. And it's an account of the gospel coming to Colossae and Paul hearing about it through his cellmate Epaphras that Paul's now laboring in prayer for them. And truly, this is just a reminder that we need to pray for one another as believers. And if Paul can be this concerned for a group of people that he has never met, how much more should we, as a body of Christ, be praying specifically for each other? It's such a blessing to have this prayer and many other prayers written down in Holy Scripture. It gives us just a small peek into Paul's personal prayer life. And, and with his peek, you get a little grasp of, of the heart of Paul as, as he longs for people to know God, to know Christ, and to live obediently to him. I want to say up front that really Paul's prayer is a model prayer for us. Again, he's praying for believers he's never met in a town he's never been to. And he's deeply concerned for their growth because he knows they're part of the family. They're part of the body of Christ. And as an apostle, he's concerned for the church. And since this is a pattern for us, as we walk our way through it, it'll help us begin to pray more effectively, I think, for one another. So as we jump into Paul's prayer for these Colossians, I want you to notice first, there's really only two specific petitions in the prayer. And we know this by the word may, at least in the ESV. I'm not sure what your translation says. There's two petitions, and with each, within each petition, Paul has specific results that he desires to see what will happen when those petitions are granted. Petition number one is in verse 9. He starts with, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Then the request is this, Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then a second request is in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Very simply, his first petition, he's asking God, he, he, he's begging God to fill the Colossian believers with the knowledge of God's will. And his second petition is that these same believers would be strengthened with his power. He's first asking that they might know God and discern his will. And then he's asking God to give him the power to accomplish his will. If you reduce this down just to one sentence, he's simply saying, Oh Lord, help the Colossians to know you and give them the power to obey you. It's an easy prayer. I can pray that for you. And I hope you'll pray that for me. 
Pray for my wife. Pray for both of us. Lord, help Pastor Rick and his wife. Help them to know you and give them the power to obey you. You see, if the first prayer is answered, Paul's anticipating seeing these Christian believers live out verse 10 so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see, that verse 9 is the prayer, and verse 10 is what he hopes God will answer to his prayer. If the second prayer is answered, then the results Paul desires in their lives from being strengthened with his power, it starts in the middle of verse 11. So they'll have all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. So beginning in verse 9, there's just one prayer with two petitions and several desired results. This morning, we're only going to look at the part one, just the first prayer. And the first thing I want you to see is that Paul's prayer, that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, is a direct attack on the false teachers that have infiltrated the church. It appears these false teachers have come in to the church, and they've kind of communicated, you know, that Jesus is okay, but there's more. There's more than just Jesus. You need to learn about the spirit world. You need to learn about all the benefits of self-denial. You need to learn about how keeping human traditions will help you become holy. You need to learn about how these Old Testament rituals will be a, a help in your sanctification. They're telling these Colossian believers there's actually a better knowledge. There's a better wisdom. There's a better understanding. Now Paul will eventually deal with the error. But before he gets to those direct confrontations and direct attacks on the teaching they're being influenced by, he begins with prayer. And his prayer is simply stating the fact, you do not need special knowledge. You do not need special wisdom or understanding. The only knowledge you need is a full and a complete and a thorough knowledge of God and his will. And his prayer is a direct confrontation to the false teaching. Now, now, I don't know about you, but I find this to be a tremendous challenge because I'd rather argue about the truth than pray for people who are in the wrong direction. I either not pray at all or, or pray later, but I, I want to argue first and then pray second. And yet Paul starts with going right to his Heavenly Father. And it's just a reminder that we should too. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. I mean, Paul knows that he's engaged in a battle. And he also knows it's only God who opens blind eyes. Ephesians 6, we're told that the weapons, one of the weapons of our spiritual warfare is the weapon of prayer. Paul tells us that his struggle is not against flesh and blood, it's against rulers and powers. And at the end of the day, he's not in a battle with the false teachers. There's a battle going on in the cosmos for the hearts and souls of men, and Paul knows to engage in the battle, he has to first cry out to God to help him. He had no problem arguing for the truth. He had no problem defending the truth. But he also understood that prayer was a weapon for the warfare of defending on and holding on to spiritual truth. And that's where the battle begins. If you happen to be in ongoing discussions with any individuals who may be off doctrinally that you're trying to talk to, 
Are you as faithful to pray as you are to argue? Are you as faithful to pray as to find that article online and send it to them to make sure they just get it right? Are we faithful to pray as we are to defend? See, when he prays, he uses the word filled. When he asks God to fill them, he's asking for them to fill, be filled full or completely full with the knowledge of God's will. And the knowledge he's talking about here is not solely intellectual knowledge. It's a full knowledge. It's a deeper knowledge. It's a complete knowledge. And, and, and so it's a knowledge that penetrates into the object. It's a knowledge that has a thorough understanding of the object. And the object here is God's will. So I'm going to ask, how do you know God's will? How do you discover God's will? How does God reveal his will to you? I mean, some of us might be immediately thinking about how God may be directing me to buy this house instead of that house. You know, what is God's will when it comes to my job? Sometimes young people wonder about God's will when it comes to going to college or even getting married. Now, all those things are important. We don't want to minimize them, but a full It really minimizes what he's talking about here for a full and a thorough and a complete knowledge of God's will because it is so much more. Paul's praying that they might know who God is, how he acts, and what he desires. Now, don't forget he's talking to believers. The letter's written to Christians. And he's praying that these Christians will be filled full with a complete, thorough, and deep knowledge of God which is so much more than, Lord, what car should I buy, or, or where should I go to college, or should I change jobs? He wants these born-again Colossian believers to have an ongoing, deeper, more complete knowledge of God. It's almost exactly what Paul said about himself in, in Philippians 3, when he just cries out in the middle of the chapter that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and, and might share in his sufferings and become like him in his death. What do, you, what do you mean, Paul? You already know God. You already know God through Christ. You're already a Christian. And Paul is just saying, yes, but I want to know him more and more and more. So what Jesus prayed for all the disciples and for us in John 17, when he's talking to his father, he says, this is eternal life, that they, mean disciples and us, may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. They already know him, and Jesus is praying that they know him even more. I hope that's your heartbeat this morning. I hope that's your heartbeat when you leave here this morning. That's the heartbeat of King David when he wrote in Psalm 42, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God, for the living God. David already knows God. He wants to know him more and more and more. Beloved, where does knowledge of God come from? Where do you find this complete, full knowledge of God? It doesn't come from man-made traditions. It doesn't come from moralism. It doesn't come from philosophy. It doesn't come from this false teaching that infiltrated the church. It doesn't come through visions. It doesn't come through near-death experience. It doesn't come by sitting by a brook and listening to the water go down the river. I mean, this kind of knowledge that Paul is talking about, this full and complete knowledge, comes to us by his Spirit through his Word. We can't say just through God's Word, because the natural man, 
The unsaved man with an open Bible cannot fully comprehend without the Spirit of God. And we can't just say by the Spirit of God because the Spirit never contradicts God's Word. So we need both. So in essence, Paul's praying that these men and women, these Colossian believers, will continue to immerse themselves in the teaching and the preaching and the study of God's Word with the aid and the help of the Holy Spirit so they'll be all fully filled up with a complete knowledge of God's will. But Paul doesn't stop there. He adds in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The phrase spiritual wisdom is is a practical know-how that comes from God. It's the capacity to understand and act wisely. Uh, It's acting according to God's will in in an experiential manner. And the spiritual understanding is the, the faculties to decide particular cases. It has the idea of discernment or making the right judgments. You can hold your place in Colossians for a moment and turn to Proverbs chapter 2. Proverbs 2, the wisdom of Solomon that he talked about through the entire book of Proverbs is exactly what he's talking about here. In Proverbs 2, I could very easily read the entire chapter, but I want you to just notice, I'll start reading in verse 6, and again, if you like to read the whole chapter on your own, you're more than welcome. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6, Solomon writes, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Jump down to verse 10. For wisdom will enter your heart, and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. Delivering you from the way of evil, for men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the way of darkness. I mean, note that God gives wisdom. It comes from his mouth, which is where? From his word, from the Bible. It's described as a shield. It's described as pleasant. It watches over you. It guards you. It delivers you from evil and perverted people. If you read the rest of the passage, you'd find that that it's this wisdom that that keeps us and frees us from immorality as men, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. It's spiritual wisdom and understanding coming from the mouth or the word of God that gives us the grace to live for God. And when you put all this together, Paul's praying that these Colossian believers will make right sound judgments in the normal affairs of life. They'll order their lives in a way that's consistent with the revealed will of God by his word, according to the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit living in and through him. Which, quite honestly, is exactly what we said earlier in the service, that that he's just talking about if they participate in the normal means of grace, sit under the right preaching of God's word, this is where it starts. And he confirms that this is exactly what he means by this prayer, by the expectations he has, following his prayer in verse 10. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now I see verse 10 as the major point, and the next three statements as three subpoints. So the major point is, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, then he gives three subpoints, to demonstrate that worthy walk. So a worthy walk pleases the Lord, a worthy walk bears fruit, 
and a worthy walk increases in the knowledge of God. The pleasing and the bearing and the increasing are all parts of walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. Beloved, one of the things that, that, that you have to see from this is that right thinking about God should always produce right living for God. Belief should always result in practice. Doctrine or knowledge and then practical living go hand in hand. Because this is not intellectual knowledge. This is why we don't just want to fill up our minds full of information. This is why Paul prayed for spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. It's because our knowledge of God and His will should be changing us from the inside out. It should be reflected in how we live. Now what then is this walk that's worthy of the Lord? Well, the word walk is simple. As you'd imagine, it means to order one's behavior, to conduct oneself, how to live, how to behave. Paul uses this word throughout the epistles. It's one of his favorite words. Uh, it's used three other times in the book of Colossians. And all the references have to do uh, with how we're living or how we're behaving. The word worthy is really interesting. It means, it means having the weight of. It means weighing as much as. It's, it's weighing the same as something else. Of like value. Worth as much. Now listen carefully to this definition. One commentator says this. The saints are to see that their manner of life, their conduct, weighs as much as the character of their Lord. That is, he's to be their example in life, and the copy must be like the example. It's like putting the Lord Jesus on the scale and putting me on the scale, and Paul's prayer is that we're equal to one another in life and character and example and conduct. The worthy walk means that our life should measure up to the life of Christ. It's exactly what Paul's praying. It's not unfamiliar to other passages. 1 Peter 2.21 For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So the worthy walk is a walk that follows the life, example, steps of the Lord Jesus. But don't miss the crucial fact that you can't do this by trying harder. You can't do this by following man-made rules. You can't do this by following traditions or trying to live a monkish life of self-denial. Living this kind of life is the result and the byproduct of a heart that desires that full, complete, thorough, biblical, spirit-led knowledge and understanding of God. That's where it begins. Now, according to the rest of the verse, this walk that's worthy of the Lord is going to have at least three characteristics about it that will be visible and noticeable. And the first one is that a person's life and conduct will be pleasing to the Lord. Now, it wasn't very long ago in the evangelical uh, blogosphere and some of the books that were written that questions were raised about whether or not God is ever displeased with his children. Is God angry at his children? And the answer, some said, well, no, because once you're in Christ, God sees you through the lens of the Lord Jesus. So no matter how you live your life, 
He's always pleased with you because you are in Christ. Well, and I'm here to say, and more importantly, the scriptures are clear that God does, in fact, get angry with his children. If you recall that very short phrase at the end of the narrative with, with David and Bathsheba, where David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, David had killed Bathsheba's husband Uriah, David had brought Bathsheba into his household and married her, and Bathsheba was, was pregnant, and then eventually the baby's born, and after he's confronted, the last phrase of the, of the narrative says this, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, thankfully, as believers, if you're genuinely a believer, you're not under God's judicial anger. You're not under God's wrath and condemnation. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So we don't fear hell. We've been saved eternally. Uh, he will hold us fast. The song that we sang about, he holds us and keeps us. We're saved from his divine wrath. However, God, as a loving father, is displeased with us when we sin, when we disobey. He does not take pleasure in us when we walk in disobedience. We can grieve his spirit, we can quench his spirit, and we can lose that close, intimate relationship and walk we had with him. We can have that broken and strained due to our own sin. Hebrews 12 reminds us that God is a loving father, and he disciplines and chastises his sons and daughters to bring us humbly back to him. So you can't live any way you want and simply believe that God's smile is already and always on you. I mean, if that were true, then why would Paul even desire anyone to have a worthy walk? There's an automatic assumption that it's possible to walk in an unworthy manner. And if he desires us to be fully pleasing to him, then there'd be an assumption as well that it's possible to not be pleasing to him. And this goes back to Christ being our example and our lives being weighed up against his. Now, there are some who just throw up their hands and say, you know, Rick, you're ridiculous. You can't use Jesus as an example because he was perfect and we never can be. And they miss the whole point of Christ coming, living, and dying, and forming us and conforming us into his image. Now, of course, perfection and absolute holiness and following Christ perfectly is obviously not attainable. And let me just say, too, that the metaphor of walking is so wonderful because walking has a learning curve, and so does pleasing the Lord. In Ephesians 5, Paul phrases it a bit differently. He says, walk as children of the light, trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. We give a lot of grace to our children when they're learning how to walk. And as believers, we do stumble and we bumble throughout our Christian lives, especially as new believers. We make decisions from time to time that we think might please the Lord. We find out maybe they're wrong. And God is ever so gracious. He's a gracious heavenly father. He knows our frame. He knows our heart. And as we're growing in greater knowledge of him, our feet and our balance become a little more steady. He's patient with us as we're learning to grow in Christ. But it's not impossible by his grace to, to follow his example even in our imperfect state. 
There's a missionary story I heard years ago about a man who, I'm not sure what country he was in, but he was serving in an indigenous tribe that had a very difficult language to learn. He was there, and he served, and he labored, and he labored, and he labored, and I don't know how many years he was there, more than one, maybe three to five. But during that time period, he got to know those in the village well. He got to know the tribe well. But he never learned the language. All that time period, he never had the opportunity to talk to them about God and talk to them about their sin and talk to them about how Christ was the Redeemer. And he died there in the village. And the villagers loved him and cared for him and buried him up on a hill. Years later, the other group of missionaries come to the same tribe, and they learned the language, took some time, and as they talked about the God who created them, and as they talked about the God who redeemed them, and as they talked about the Old Testament stories that, that brought to light the substitutionary atonement of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then as they began to talk about this wonderful Savior, this loving Savior, they looked at these missionaries and said, he's been here. He's been here before. And they looked at the tribe and said, that's impossible. He lived 2,000 years ago. There's no way he could have ever been here. No, 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 no. You don't understand. He was here. And the day finally came when they walked that tribe. That tribe walked these missionaries up to the top of the hill to show where they had buried the previous missionary who never spoke to him never spoke the word of God to them, but lived as an example before them. Not perfect, but an example. You know, as my former pastor used to say, and he said this so often I remembered it, which reminds me that if I just keep saying it often enough, maybe you'll remember, because it took me probably about six years to remember this. He's been gone a long time. I heard it 35 years ago. 35 years from now, if one person remember this, I will be blessed and Paul's still legacy will go on. But he said it over and over and over. That when you're justified in Christ, when you are made righteous in Christ, when all of his righteousness is credited to your account, then a holy transaction takes place, and you, in fact, are declared righteous in God's sight. He would say, at that moment, you were made positionally righteous in the sight of God. And then he would go on to say, and for the rest of your life, God is going to make you practically what you are positionally. He's going to, the rest of your life, make you practically what you are positionally. He's going to conform you into the image of Christ. Uh, and it's going to take, a, take time. And when you fail, you confess your sin. He's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And when you sin and repent of your sin... You continue to ask him to continue to conform you into his image. And throughout your Christian life, God who authored your faith will continue, as Paul says in Philippians, he will perfect you until the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to sure, be sure that you're becoming more and more of what you already are in Christ. So the first result that Paul wants to see in his prayer is, of knowledge is answered that they live in a manner worthy of the Lord, and then please him in every respect. The second part of that worthy walk is to bear fruit in every good work. Now, it seems to go backwards here. We mentioned the good fruit back in earlier in verses 3 through 8. And here, Paul, he's simply reiterating that, 
genuine believers will be obvious to all. Matthew 7, Jesus tells us that you'll know them by their fruits. Fruit is a byproduct of what a person really is. Uh, When I planted my first and only garden in Michigan years and years ago, uh, I'm not a very good gardener. I actually forgot what I planted. I had no idea what I planted. All these green things were coming up, and Deb would say, well, what, what is that? I have no idea. I just planted everything and didn't know what was there. But lo and behold, the day came. Hey, that's a zucchini. Oh, look at that. It's a yellow squash. Ah, those are tomatoes. There's some green peppers over here. The fruit proved what kind of plant it really was. The fruit was a byproduct of the vine it grew on. And what Paul's saying here is that when the prayer for knowledge of God's will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, is answered, then visible fruit will be a normal part of the worthy walk. And I do think he's talking here about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. You know, when you live your life among the unsaved community, is there a normal difference between you and them? Or do you laugh at the same jokes? Use the same crude language? No distinction in what you talk and what you do and what you watch, how you spend your money, how you spend your time. I mean, does being a Christian or having the label Christian mean anything, or is it just a religious term? I mean, there's even an assumption in the statement that says you're going to bear fruit in every good work. The assumption is that as a believer, you're going to be doing good works. The phrase good works is all over the New Testament. Uh, Dorcas had acts of charity and she committed good works. Paul encourages Timothy to tell the rich among you to be, to be generous and rich in good works. Titus said there's some who profess to know God, but they deny them by their works. It's a tremendous joy as a pastor, honestly, to see many here at Grace involved in various good works. Things as simple as getting ready for the baptism, getting ready for the Lord's Supper, getting ready for the dinner. Um, serving by providing meals are tremendous opportunities to do good works. It's a huge blessing. And those of you that serve, and I, most of us never hear about it. Those good works and the obedience don't save you. But if you're saved, your good works are a byproduct of that. And the whole point of this is that Paul believes that bearing fruit in every good work will be a byproduct of the prayer to know God more fully. And it's part of that life that's walking that's worthy of the Lord. And then finally, the third part of this worthy walk is in the last phrase of verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, that seems redundant. He began by asking they be filled with the knowledge of God's will, and then he's closing out increasing in the knowledge of God. I'm already filled and being filled with God's will. Why do I have to increase in the knowledge of God? And I think the difference here is that Paul's not talking about just knowledge of his will here. He's talking about knowing God and knowing his personhood and knowing his character, knowing his attributes and knowing who he is. And now it's time to look back at your bulletin at that quote by Tozer on on, on the insert, the A.W. Tozer quote from Knowledge of the Holy. This is one of the greatest statements that that you'll ever have read or look at when it's related to, to our knowledge of God. Tozer writes, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and a man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. 
Now, this is true in, in regards to nations and peoples. It's even more true of the church and individuals. Tozer goes on. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid. For her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. She can never escape the self-disclosure of her witness concerning God. So why is Paul saying that a worthy walk will include an increase in the knowledge of God? Because the single most important thing in our lives is that we have a true knowledge of the true God of the Bible. So you get to know God, so you can get to know the God who created you, who redeemed you, who sustains you and delivers you. And it's absolutely true that whatever mental image, whatever we think of what God is, will dictate always how we live our lives. So when you're interacting with others who say, ah, he's just the man upstairs, well, there's no holiness. There's no reverence. He's just a kind old man. He doesn't really care if I do anything. He'll approve. If he always has a smile on his face, then he's not holy. He's not just. And if I can't do anything to wipe the smile off, then I can live any way that I want. But when we understand the God of the Bible in all of his glory, his self-existence, his divine omniscience, his omnipresence, his faithfulness and his goodness and his justice and his mercy and his divine sovereignty, the greater knowledge we have of him, the more we'll revere him, the more we'll serve him, the more we'll love him, the more we'll bow before him and desire to walk in a manner that is worthy of his great name. And this is the beauty of the entire passage as I wrap this up. Paul is not telling you to go pick yourselves up by your bootstraps when you don't walk the worthy walk, or you fail to live pleasing to him, or when you're not bearing fruit. It begins with the prayer, Oh God, please fill these Colossian believers with a knowledge of you and your will. And the results of the prayer being answered will be a deeper desire for a greater knowledge of God. And that, in turn, will result in a desire for a more worthy walk and to please the Lord, which will result in a desire for a greater knowledge of God. At the end of the day, Paul is simply praying that we will hunger for a God and never be satisfied, and we'll seek a knowledge of Him that we'll seek forever. And as we get to know Him in all of His fullness, it'll have a profound effect on our behavior, because belief and practice go hand in hand. So very simply, the more you know him, the more you'll desire to obey him. The more you obey him, the more you'll desire to know him. And the more you know him, the more you'll desire to obey him. And the more you obey him, then the more you desire to know him. And I could continue that phrase for the rest of the day. Genuine full knowledge of God is the breeding ground for the obedient heart. And the obedient heart has greater longings for a more intimate knowledge of God. So at the end of the day, there's no greater prayer than the prayer I could pray right now. I could say, oh Lord, please fill the believers at Grace Fellowship Church with a full knowledge of your will in all spiritual 
wisdom and understanding, that they might live and behave in a manner that's worthy of your great and holy name. So they'll please you in all they do. They'll produce fruit of the Christian life and have a greater hunger and a greater thirst to continue to know you until they see you face to face. Now, I'm doing a complete disservice by not preaching another sermon right now with the phrase, strengthen with all power. Because to accomplish this, you need power. You need the power of the Spirit, the dunamis or the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit that we'll have to answer next Sunday. But for now, for your homework, pray for one another. Pray for me. Ask God to give us a deeper desire to know Him. I continue to marvel. The older I get and the more opportunity I have to study and teach and preach and learn, I just marvel at the direct result between belief and behavior. And as men and women who are predisposed, all of us are, to try to earn it our own way, to try and do it on our own, to try to appease God, we so easily look for ways and formulas to do things on our own. That was the problem in the Colossian church. And it's still a problem to this day. It's because they have a diminished view of Christ. They're drawn to the worship of angels and self-denial and so on. And Paul sets Christ above all this. Now for some today, this might sound too, sim too simple. I'm telling you, it's simple, but it's true and it's profound. Everything that we need for life and godliness is wrapped up in the Lord Jesus. By believing in him and trusting in him, that he might, you might live for him. And next week, we'll see that he'll give us that dynamite power to be pleasing to him, to bear fruit in every good work, and to increase in the knowledge of God. So believe Christ, know Christ, love Christ, serve Christ. And now, as we wrap things up, we'll close with a song about Christ.